Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing in this rather lengthy series, Out of Bondage into Abundance, looking at the entire journey of Israel <clears throat> coming out of Egypt, traveling through the wilderness into the Promised Land. And, of course, as we've been seeing right along, it is a beautiful picture of our journey in Christ, out of sin into the freedom and abundance that Jesus spoke of in John 10, an abundant life, an overflowing life, a life of rest, a life of grace, a life of freedom in Him. And we've now come to part six, and I'll mention once again, for any that might just be joining us, uh, the notes and recordings for all of these uh, are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And if you are following along in our outline, we'll be picking up tonight on page 91. And again, this is in part 6 which is called Conquering Seven Nations. Just to give a real quick synopsis, when the children of Israel came to the edge of the promised land, they were reminded once again that going into the land flowing with milk and honey, there were seven enemy nations occupying that land. I think that in itself is a profound uh, concept that entering into this place of rest, of promise, of abundance, there's one small detail that has to be attended to. There are enemies there, and that's their home. And not only are these enemies, they're wicked enemies. They're enemies that God wants to destroy and drive out, and He's going to implement the children of Israel in bringing that about. And we looked quite a bit uh, earlier on at just how wicked these nations were. They were embracing idolatry, uh, even human sacrifice, uh, perversion, immorality, and so forth. And God told the children of Israel, don't worry about them, they're stronger they're greater than you are, but I will go before you as a devouring fire. I will send in my hornets, and I will destroy them. Now, we're looking at the first of seven nations that were enumerated uh, several different places, but we looked at Deuteronomy 7, where all seven of these nations are listed, and we're continuing from last time looking at the first of these seven nations, the Canaanites. And I think this first nation is important for several reasons. Um, we've made it the first one in the list because of the fact that five other nations are descendants of Canaan. So Canaan, who was cursed by God because of the incident with his father and grandfather, Noah and Ham, Canaan was cursed, and his descendants 
came under that curse. And actually, six of the seven nations that we're going to be looking at all spring from Canaan and that curse that came upon him. So I think it's important for us to understand who these Canaanites are and what they represent. We saw last time that the name Canaanite means a merchant or a peddler. And they lived near the sea because of their occupation, which was that of buying and selling and trading. They were merchants. And of course, in those days, the sea was very valuable uh, for the use of transporting goods to and from their home place. Now, the five other nations that resulted from Canaan, and of course Canaan gave rise to the Canaanites, uh, it has a very interesting parallel in the New Testament, which we touched on last time, but we're going to look at it in more detail tonight. The Canaanites, we said, represent worldliness or love of money. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with doing business. But as we're going to see tonight, the root of all evil is the love of money. And interestingly, Canaan is the root of all these other wicked nations, with the exception of one whose origin and genealogy we don't know. There's nothing written about it in the Bible. But basically, Canaan is the root of all the other nations. And so it fits right in with the New Testament picture that love of the world, love of money, love of the material aspects of life, apart from loving and serving God, is the root of all other evil. And, you know, they... They say in the world, follow the money. Well, in this case, if you follow the money, it leads you back to the root, which is the love of the world and the love of money. Many scriptures we looked at last time warning us, do not love the world or anything in the world. Friendship or love of the world is like adultery with God. And the world and the whole world system can defile us. We're not just talking about the physical world. When the Bible talks about the world, it's referring to the whole system, the material part of it, but also the whole philosophy, the whole system of the world. And in particular, it involves the fact that the whole world system presently is under the control of Satan. He's called the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. And so Satan is forever trying to take people's eyes and attention off of heavenly things and put them on earthly things. He's continually trying to, as he did with Jesus, in the temptation in the wilderness, 
to put our eyes on the kingdoms of this world, the riches, the glory, the splendor of this world, and thus blinding us to the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to continue tonight from page 91, if you are following in the notes. The Canaanites, for us, represent this merchant spirit, this worldly, earthbound mindset that all there is to life is eat, drink, and be merry. Buy, sell, get as much stuff as you can. It's a focus on the temporal, on the earthly, and on the material, and it neglects the spiritual, the eternal. And I want to begin tonight in the portion of Scripture where we find that all-important warning about money being, I'm sorry, the love of money being the root of all evil. That's found in 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to read from verse 3 to 11. Please note, money is not evil. Money in itself is not evil. The love of money is the problem. And Paul is going to address this at length here in his writing to young Timothy, picking it up in 1 Timothy 6 from verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, notice this, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And we need to pause here. Paul is talking about certain people that they already had in the church in his day, whom he refers to here as having a corrupt mind. People of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. Well, how can we identify these people? How can we tell if someone has a corrupt mind and they've been robbed of the truth? Here's the punchline. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Whoa. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, let me reiterate, money is not evil. Working a job to pay for your rent, to put food on the table, to clothe your family, that's not evil. Paul's talking about something different here. First of all, they twist scriptures to try to make it look like godliness is now the stepping stone to me making a lot of money. Godliness is a means to financial gain. The worst case scenario being those who call themselves ministers of Christ, who use their office in the ministry to scam people and to make all kinds of money from simple, naive, unsuspecting followers. It's rampant. It's everywhere. It's scary, though, when you understand what Paul is saying here. People who have that mindset, who think they can use their office in the ministry to make money off of other people, their mind is corrupt. Now, the worker is worthy of his hire, Jesus taught. Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 9. Those who serve the Lord... Uh, they should be supported by the church. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking the ministry and perverting it into a money-making business, using godliness as a means to financial gain. And then he speaks several times in the next few verses about something that is very hard to come by in the world today. It's called contentment. The whole world system is designed to create discontent. Follow me here tonight because this is very important. The whole world system is designed to create in you and me a feeling of discontent. Look at the commercials on the TV, listen to the commercials on the radio, look at the ads that pop up on the internet. We're bombarded day and night 
with information that basically tells you the reason you're unhappy is you don't have a brand new Mercedes and an $800,000 house with a six-car garage. You'll never be happy until you have all that. And so the poor guy who has a simple house, maybe with one-car garage, I don't even have a one-car garage, but maybe he only has one-car garage, he sees that ad and he goes, yeah, that's why I'm so unhappy. I need that $800,000 house. And little by little, he starts to buy into this lie that I need more. I've got to get more money, more money, more money, more money. And then he gets on this treadmill that ends up in what Paul describes in verse 9 as ruin and destruction. He says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, come on, let's be real. How many people in America, let's just talk about this country for a minute, how many people in this country are content just to have food and clothing? Probably not very many. How many people are content to have a house, a car, food and clothing? Probably not too many. There are still many other things on their Christmas wish list that they must have before they can be happy. And this is a trick of the devil. And this is the world system trying to corrupt our minds, trying to take us away from the truth of the gospel. The concept of contentment is very important for Christians to understand. Look at verse 6 again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you have those two things in your life, you're wealthy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. I think it was Billy Graham that first said, you don't find any U-Hauls being towed behind the hearse. When you die, you ain't taking nothing with you. <laughs> we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. Listen carefully again to verse 9. Those who want to get rich, there's the problem. They, they've now got this discontentment driving them. I've got to get rich. I've got to get more money or I'll never be happy. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all evil. He goes on to say some people eager for money. There's nothing wrong with getting a paycheck for your week's labor to pay the rent, pay the bills, buy some food, and maybe have some clothing to wear. That's okay. He's not talking about that. Eager for money. 
loving money, wanting more, more, more. I got to get rich. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. That's the problem. We start to get separated from God. We lose our vision for eternal and spiritual things. And all we can see now is the material. And we start to drift away, wandering from the faith. He's talking about Christians, people who were in the church, people who were in the faith. You can't wander from something if you weren't originally in it. So they wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Be very, very careful, my friends. Be very careful. Again, the world system is bombarding us with this day and night. And we've got to counteract it. We've got to resist. We've got to fight against this spirit. Otherwise, we can fall into traps. We can get plunged into ruin and destruction. And in the end, lose our faith and get pierced through with many griefs. Doesn't sound very good to me. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking about his soon return. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We are surely in the last days. Jesus is coming very soon. And he compared the last days to two periods of time in history. The days of Noah and the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exactly where we are now. It fits the description of not only the U.S. but many other nations to a T. In Noah's day... The world was filled with violence. And of course, we all know what characterized Sodom and Gomorrah. It was perversion. We see this every day now in the news. Perversion, more and more of it, and violence, more and more of it. But listen to what Jesus says here. He doesn't talk about violence. He doesn't talk about perversion. Listen to what he does talk about. Luke 17, from verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Now pause for a minute. There's nothing wrong with any of those activities. Eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. What is he talking about? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Up to the day 
Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, and now he adds something more here, buying and selling, planting and building. There's nothing wrong with any of those activities. Eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, building. Nothing wrong with any of those activities. But here's what I believe Jesus is trying to get across to us. That's all they were doing. Their whole life consisted of eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, and building. In other words, they had no heavenly vision. They had no vision of eternal things. They were locked into this world and the world system. And it blinded them to the fact that their days on earth were numbered. says in verse 28 again, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Here's the troubling part, verse 30. It will be just like this. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. If you compare this with Matthew's account in Matthew 24, you'll discover that the people in Noah's day, they were so concerned with eating, drinking, earthly things, that they were not heeding the warnings that God was giving them through Noah. And thus, when the flood came, they were taken completely off guard. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. You know, as I look around me, I know in my heart of hearts we're getting close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been looking for his soon return for 41 years now, but I see the day approaching. I'm getting more and more excited about leaving this world and going to be with him and spending the rest of my eternity with God in his kingdom. I'm getting excited about that. But a lot of people around me don't seem to give a hoot They're not the least bit concerned about God, about repentance, about seeking God or getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And when you talk to them about it, it's like water rolling off a duck's back. But there are going to be a lot of surprises on that day. Because just as they were surprised in Noah's day, and just as they were surprised in Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, 
buying, selling, planting, and building. But if that's all you're doing, if your whole life consists only of those earthly activities and you have no view toward eternity, uh, that's a very troubling condition to be in. Look at another passage while we're here in Luke. Luke chapter 12. Uh, we'll pick it up from verse 13, going down to verse 21. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> How many families have been destroyed fighting over an inheritance? It's very sad. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Whoa. Pause. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Here again. Everything we hear on the radio, on the TV, all the advertising, and even most of the conversations around us say the exact opposite. Life does consist in an abundance of possessions. And listen to the way people talk. Oh, do you know where uh, Mr. Smith lives? He's, he lives down in Potomac. He's in one of those $8 million mansions. He's got, you know, about 10 cars. He's a multi-millionaire. He has an abundance of possessions. Therefore, he must have a great life. Wrong. Wrong. Abundance of possessions has nothing to do with having a great life. Matter of fact, many of the people I've known in my life who had a lot of stuff, their life is anything but blessed or great. Their life is filled with strife, fights, paranoia. They're always afraid somebody's going to steal their stuff. They can't sleep at night. Oh, God, what a horrible way to live. Life does not consist in an abundance of of possessions. Watch out for greed, Jesus says. He's not going to get involved in trying to divide up this inheritance between these two brothers. He says, you got it all wrong. You need to get your heart right first. Get free from that greed. Maybe you'd be better off if you gave it all to your brother and took nothing. Then you'll get free. He goes on in verse 16. Then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? 
I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Pause for a minute. That's what we're told here in America is the American dream. That's what you work for. You have such an abundance, you can take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Just buy more and more stuff, bigger and bigger barns, get bigger and bigger houses, fancier and more expensive cars, and the more toys you have, the happier you're going to be. Wrong. Verse 20. Verse 20. But God said to this rich man, You fool! There probably weren't too many other people calling him a fool. And here again, if you check yourself, Notice how differently we treat people who are rich. Oh, we treat them with great respect. We're very nice to them. We bend over backwards to do anything for them. Why? Because they're rich. Well, what does God call him? A fool. You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but he is not rich toward God. Not rich toward God. We can be rich in the world. We can also be rich toward God. Two different things entirely. Verse 33. Here's Jesus' solution to it all. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've known certain people over the years, if you listen carefully to their conversation, very frequently they make reference to money and money matters. Why? That's where their heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Others, they may possess a few things, they may not, it really doesn't matter, if you listen to their conversation, all they ever want to talk about is the Lord. Oh, the Lord is coming soon. I can't wait to see Jesus. Hey, did you read this verse in the Bible? I found something really cool in the book of Psalms today. You can tell where their heart is. Their heart is on the Lord. Their heart is in the Word. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the problem. When our heart is all wrapped up in earthly treasures, then what happens when the stock market crashes? 
What happens when the moths and the rust and the thieves break through? What happens when suddenly everything vanishes? And it does. The Bible says riches grow wings and it flies away out of your pocket. Once it's all gone, then what happened to your heart? That's where your heart was in all of your treasure, and it went up in smoke. Another portion in Luke, chapter 16. By the way, sometimes in church we're afraid to talk about money. I'm not. I've given uh, lengthy seminars on finances and on money. Why? Because Jesus spoke a lot about money. The Bible talks a lot about money. How you and I relate to money affects our salvation. It affects our eternity. And so we need to know how to handle money. We need to know how to properly relate to money and use it for the purpose for which God intended and not cross the line. Notice what this next passage says. Luke 16 Verses 13 to 15, one of numerous places where Jesus speaks about money. No one can serve two masters. He doesn't say you shouldn't do it. He says you can't do it. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, not you shouldn't or you mustn't, you cannot serve both God and money. I think we better repeat that. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money serves certain purposes in our lives. But never, never, never should we serve money. Money should serve us. Money serves certain important purposes in life, but we cannot serve money and then hope to serve God. Can't do it. Serve God, don't serve money. Love God, don't love money. Verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money... Isn't that interesting? The Pharisees were the most religious people of Jesus' day. Oh, they had long white robes. My, they could pray up a storm. They could quote Bible verses. These were the holy men. That's what Pharisee means. These were the holy dudes. Well, they weren't real holy inside. And Jesus addressed that on a number of occasions. They were like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He says the Pharisees who loved money. So they were using their position as so-called spiritual leaders in the community. They were just using it as a cover-up for their greed, their covetousness, and their love for money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. 
What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I think we should all pay close attention to these words that we've just read and consider them often, pray over them regularly, and ask God to help us to serve Him and not money. I don't want to be a slave of money. Money serves certain useful purposes in my life, but I don't want to be enslaved to it. I don't want to love it or worship it or idolize it. It has a certain place in my life, but I want to serve God. I want to worship God. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, in Mark chapter 10, there's a well-known story of a very wealthy young man who came to Jesus, and he had certain questions. Let's find out what they were and what Jesus' response to this young man was. Mark 10, from verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a very important question. It's a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 19. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now a lot of people read this and they think Jesus is saying you can inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments. That's really not what he's saying. We know from many other places in scripture the commandments were designed to reveal how sinful we are. They're not a pathway to eternal life. So what he's really saying is, if you know all the commandments, they're going to convict you of sin, and they're going to cause you to run to me, because I'm the only one who can truly give you salvation. But he doesn't go into all that here. Verse 20, Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. He was a good Jewish man, kept all the law. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Now remember, we read in the last portion of Scripture, God knows your heart. The Pharisees, God knew their heart. They loved money. And they were trying to justify themselves, but Jesus said, God knows your hearts. God knew this young man's heart. And he was pointing to one thing. He he put his finger on that one thing in this young man's life. And I think we can identify it as we read on here. One thing you lack. 
Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. <clears throat> now again, some people have misunderstood this to think, well, if I sell everything I have, then I'll be guaranteed eternal life. No. That's not really what he's saying. What he is saying to this young man is there's one thing that's still holding you back in your heart of hearts. It's love for money and it's love for the things of this world. Greed. And the only way you can prove to me that you've broken that is go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad, here comes, because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This man's wealth was more important to him than following Jesus. This man's wealth was more important than obeying Jesus and doing what he just told him to do. Thus, he went away sad. He still had his wealth. But why would he be so sad if he's got all of his wealth? Obviously, in his heart of hearts, he knew what was happening. Verse 23, Jesus looked around <clears throat> and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we have quite a bit more to go. I'm just going to give sort of a quick overview of what we want to cover next time. And this is how to overcome worldliness. These Canaanites, the Israelites, had to overcome them. They had to defeat them. How do we defeat this Canaanite spirit? How do we overcome worldliness? Well, I'm going to introduce it tonight, and next time we're going to come back and look at these in much more detail. But I'm going to go through the list. Seven things that are found in Scripture that will help us to overcome worldliness, the love of money, and the love of the world. The first one is faith. And we'll see in 1 John it says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The second thing we're going to look at next time is the grace of God. Paul writes to Titus and says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and no 
to worldly passions. So the grace of God in our life is a force, it's a power that's going to enable us to overcome worldly passions, worldly temptations. Third on our list, and this is a big one, we're going to spend a lot of time on this next time, do not conform to this world, don't compromise with the world or its system. The Bible says, come out and be separate. Children of Israel were warned not to make any treaties with these nations, not to bow down to their gods, not to adopt any of their customs. Basically, don't have anything to do with them. And the same thing applies to us and our relationship to this world. We're in the world, but we saw last time Jesus said we're not of it. We don't have to adopt the world's philosophy. We don't have to dress like, talk like, sing like, look like the world. It's okay to be different. Come out from among them and be separate. The fourth thing we're going to look at, a key to overcoming the world, is understanding there are two spirits. There's the spirit of the world, and there's the spirit of God, and they are in direct conflict. You and I need to be filled with the spirit of God. We need to be led by the spirit of God. We need to be listening to the spirit of God. We need to be receiving revelation through the spirit of God, and that will help us to overcome the spirit of this world. The next thing we're going to look at next time is setting our hope, our affection, and our vision on heavenly things. It's a decision. We either fix our eyes on earthly things, or we set our eyes, we set our affection on things above. It's something you have to choose to do. Every morning when you wake up, start your day with God. Begin your day in the Word of God. Begin your day with prayer. And dedicate your eyes and your attention to things above, not to the things of this earth. Yeah, we may have to go to work. We may have to do some physical things during the day. But throughout the day, you can still be fixing your eyes on things above. Looking at things that are unseen, not things which are seen, because the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are unseen <clears throat> are eternal. A sixth way to overcome worldliness and the love of money, you're not going to like this one, but this one's very powerful. And we just read this in one of the passages where Jesus dealt with the rich young man. He told him, Sell what you have and give it away. Giving is a very powerful way to defeat and overcome the love of money, greed, and covetousness. When you give money away, there's something liberating about it. It sets you free from your attachment to the money. Matter of fact, uh, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. 
We've studied that before. It literally means hilarious giver. And God will bring you to a place where it actually is fun to give away stuff. And it's fun because you feel a release in your spirit. You feel like that money, that stuff, no longer has any hold on you. And finally, we mentioned this at the beginning of our study tonight, but we're going to come back and talk about it as an important way of overcoming the world, the things of the world, the system of the world, and the love of money. And that is, learn to be content. We have to fight against the spirit that always is trying to create inside of us a sense of discontentment. I watch the TV commercial and it tells me if I don't have a brand new BMW, I'm never going to be happy. So if I listen to that long enough, I actually start thinking, hmm, my beat up old 15 year old car isn't making me happy anymore. I need a brand new car, then I'll feel happy. No, I'm content with what I have. My car will get me from point A to point B. <clears throat> I've got some clothes to wear. I've got some food to eat. Paul says, that's enough. Learn to be content. And next time when we look at this in Philippians 4, we're going to emphasize the word learn. This is something we need to learn how to do. It doesn't come naturally. We need to work at this. We need to discipline ourselves and learn how to be content. And I guarantee you, if you listen to the conversations of people around you in the next few days, you're going to find that most of the people around you, it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, how much stuff they have, they're still not content. It's never enough. If they've got two cars, then they need three. If they have a two-car garage, they need a four-car garage. And on and on it goes. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. And like the hamster on a treadmill, we just go round and round and round and round, running the rat race, thinking we need more stuff, to make us happy. More stuff is not going to make us happy. Let me read again what Jesus <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> what Jesus said. <clears throat> A man's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not come from possessions. Life comes from God. Real life comes from a relationship <clears throat> with God. And in Christ, we can find abundant life. He says, I came to give them life and life to the full. Life more abundantly. That's what this study is about. Out of bondage into abundance but it may not be the abundance that you were thinking. This isn't an abundance of stuff. It's abundance of grace. It's abundance of God's presence. It's abundance of the riches of Christ 
in your life and mine. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, O God, for setting us free from the love of money, from the love of stuff, from the love of this world. Lord, you said to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if we love the world, the love of the Father cannot be in us. Father, I am praying for your church in these last days, that you would cleanse us from every spot, every wrinkle, every defilement, that we would not be spotted by this world, but we would come out and be separate. We would be set free from the spirit of the world, and you would enable us, O oh God, to find true contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for each and every one listening tonight, all those that may listen in the future to this recording. Lord, open our eyes to things which are eternal, things which are real, things which have true substance, and not the passing vapor of this world. Give us a vision of heavenly things. Give us a vision of your kingdom, O oh God. And Lord, help us not to be like the people in Noah's day or in Lot's day, just eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, giving in marriage, without any vision of eternity. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help us, Holy Spirit. We give you praise. <clears throat> we give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.